decade coming to a close, we open the way for a new time and new ideas, aiming to take the best of the past with us and move forward in a positive way. For our last podcast of 2019, we wanted to gather all our previous guests together in one place. I also wanted to use this opportunity to ask you, how can we help you to find what you're looking for? Do you want more interviews with sustainability and fashion pioneers? Have you got your sustainability knowledge on lockdown or are you finding it harder to navigate than ever? Do you want practical business tips on how to embed sustainability into your product and business? Or do you want us to explore street culture and other areas of the country and overseas for different viewpoints on business, sustainability and innovation? Would you love us to do more events and workshops? What is it that you really need from us? Please do let us know via email info at blackneondigital.com or head to our Instagram at blackneondigital and drop us a message. Episode 19, Sarah Corbett, How the Craftivist Collective Creates Change with Gentle Protest. So I make cross-stitch banners and often put them up during London Fashion Week near Somerset House and different brands, but you can do it on any issue at any time. And because we have craftivists all over the world, you know, I started doing it by accident and people started wanting to join in around the world. So it all happened very organically. And my parents at the beginning were like, we don't quite know what you're doing, but, you know, we'll just watch. And now they totally get it. And it took a few years for campaigners to understand it um but i won a campaign award last year um which again proves that craftivism i think is legitimate and useful but it's difficult so i've got some projects on one on climate change which covers that which people can do at any time of year on their own or with groups i've just done a project on mental health because we didn't have one um, and I saw you um, engaging with the MP and sort yeah, of Yeah, so we make short, positive yeah. notes mm. for politicians in the UK, um, asking them to to reach their target of health equality, so health equality and services between mental and physical health services before 2021, which they've agreed to, but all of the austerity measures and what they're doing doesn't fit it. Um, and actually the services have gone down and are more stressed out but all of the political parties before the general election we had last year had put mental health in their manifesto, which is the first time ever. So it felt like really good time and to say to new MPs, as well as some that got a massive majority or a much smaller one, to say, what are you doing on mental health? You've said publicly you're going to do stuff, but we want to make you accountable. But what's brilliant as well is the kits are used by people all over the world and they just change the words to link in with their senator or with their local councillors. Or... So I try and make them as accessible as possible, but also have a clear goal. Because um, like I said, activism isn't awareness raising or donation or fundraising. fundraising. It's acting on issues that are structural change that you want to see. Mm-hmm. So it's not put on a plaster on a wound it's trying to make sure that wound never happens yeah. again episode 20 jenny holloway fashion enter gives hope with apprenticeships and supply chain technology how do you feel that um generally the sort of education system is set up to 
perhaps maybe support the design roles rather than the skill roles? Or what's mm. your what's your opinion on, on that really, and what do we need? really touches my nerves because I just feel as though, you know, you've been in the factory today, you've seen sample machinists making wedding dresses, you've seen our production machinists making complicated garments mm. that have got 16 pieces to a pattern. Those are skills, Mm. stitching beautifully, French seams. um, And then I'm not decrying designers at all, but I do bemoan the fact that many of um, the designers we come across don't have the technical skills to support what they've learned. So is that fabric fit for purpose intended? Mm. You know, what are the seams? What's a flat lock machine? How how do you... How are you going to actually make it? Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think the, um, the, the perception of a designer is so high and glamorous compared to being a sample machinist. But that designer cannot perform without that mm. sample machinist. Mm. And actually, when you have your own label, it's not glamorous mm. at all. It's a lot of hard work, um, long, long hours. It tends to be a passion for years rather than being a, a sustained mm. business. Um, and I, I just think uh, it's about time skills were really uh, recognised yeah. and valued. Yeah. yeah. Um, what do you think we need to to enable that then? What do you think we need to make skills kind of more more perceived as valuable then? What, how do you think well, we can I, you change? Well, I'd like to see that that's on the political agenda, mm. that there is more adult education budget um, available through the ESFA, um, Education Skills Funding Agency, mm-hmm. to train more people in these technical mm-hmm. skills. I'm a great believer in T-levels, and they should be esteemed parity with the A-levels. I don't know how that's going to be incorporated into secondary schools, and I'm not even sure that can be done. But certainly places like us and other other places around the UK, we've got the machinery Mm. and the expertise to really deliver on Mm. T-levels. And manufacturing's fantastic. Mm. Now, when you when you come and see all these raw components combined and beautiful garments are, are out, I mean, I just think it's yeah. fantastic. Episode 21, Catherine Tatum. How Tatum Jones emotionally connect to design socially conscious fashion and champion inclusivity. Um, can we just talk a little bit about the... Um, basically the Walmart prize, what that means to you as a business and kind of um, in terms of financial, you know, you win money from the prize and actually you also um, get into different stockists and things. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so winning, so we won the Walmart prize in 2016, February 2016, um, and we won it in New York Fashion Week, which for us was a dream because we love New York. Um, And... It was a real game changer for us um, from a business point of view, but also from a kind of brand messaging point of view. We we were recognised for the innovative approach we had mm. to the textiles that we designed for that collection. We we kind of we the way we approached designing um, the Walmart collection was not to was not to kind of change what we do and okay, let's now go and find some wool. Um, that will apply to our um, designs. It was more like, let's just keep doing what we're doing um, and bring wool into our world. Mm. Um, so f- for us, that meant... Conti- at that point, we were really into um, macrame laces. So we had to find somewhere that would weave um, wool lace for us. Um, and we went to the French factory that had been doing it for, 
like almost 150 years and asked them if they would change their like hundreds and hundreds spools of nylon thread that they used into wool would it, and we had to supply all the wool and we had to go through various different rounds of um experimentation with the weights of wool um they were breaking i mean it was quite sort of um heart-wrenching at times however we found a supplier and a weight of wool that worked in their machines that they allowed us mm. to, to to give to them to try out and it worked and mm. they'd never ever produced wool lace before um and they now sell wool lace as part of their collection amazing yeah, um, so you've kind of yeah totally changed their perception yeah. of what's possible. Actually. Yeah, hence why the title now you know textile innovators and pioneers. Yeah. You've kind of yeah yeah, and it was the first time that we kind of been recognised um, globally really for that because it's such a global competition. Mm. Um, and then yeah, I mean the money was amazing. <laughs> it was a it was a real turning point for us. It allowed us to um, to kind of invest back into the business. I mean we'd spent. Um, we'd spent money on developing the collections, um, but we'd learned a lot about textile development whilst doing that. Um, and then the stockists that we that we um, took on from the competition were all kind of stellar, you know, world-class stockists, mm-hmm. which we then flew around the world and launched each collection with those stores. So as a competition i mean it's incredible yeah Yeah. it's a massive competition it's an incredible one to win um and the company themselves um are very thorough Mm. there's nothing um there's no other competition i think that sort of rivals them for their thoroughness in how um in how they not only um, not only how they deliver the prize um, but how they make you then kind of launch your collections, how you communicate your collections, um, and how they get you involved in the world of Walmart as well. And, mm. and you become ambassadors mm. to Walmart. Episode 22, Karen Franklin, from ID Magazine to Professor of Diverse Selfhood. As a professor of diversity, as an educator, as a, a fashion leader, how can we support that younger generation? Um, what tools, what kind of, you know, I did sort of, yeah, just how, how can we help them? I took myself off and did a Master of Science in Applied Psychology so that I could apply it to my experience in fashion and see the areas where... We were the obstacles seemed to be immovable, and once I began to learn about you know sort of cognitive process, the way the mind accumulates information to um, to present bias and assumption almost to itself, mm-hmm. because in order for us to function in the way that we do, we have to always reach back into our heads for um, you know previously experienced knowledge, and that's how stereotypes. So one of the things that I decided to do was, you know, in in my lectures, I would approach the subject of diverse selfhood from a variety of different positions, from the way in which we need to experience it and feel um, that we can celebrate our uniqueness and feel that we are good enough in an uncertain world, not that we're certain we're not good enough because the brain likes certainties so it often moves over into that space it doesn't like to sit in a position of uncertainty 
But that's something actually that could be seen as a neutral position, mm. not a negative position, to be uncertain. Because it means you're thinking. Mm. It means you're looking at what's around you. So supporting the individual um, and, and obviously flagging up resilience tools, emotional intelligence tools from the world of psychology. But then looking at how that individual is able to go forward and make small changes just in the choices that they roll out every day mm -hmm. to prioritise diverse perspectives. And, and if we forgive ourselves for the limited knowledge that we have, you know, uh, here sit I, you know, white, female, um, cis, het, um, middle class, able-bodied. So my experience of my... of of life is through my own privileged position and I forgive myself for not knowing everything there is out there to know. We're now lucky that there is so much information coming forward um, for us to do the work, mm. not to be outsourcing and bringing in others to do that emotional labour, but for us to say, I'm not well enough informed about this, so I need to be... I need to bring myself up to speed. So, you know, uh, when we know that the brain is naturally inclined to bias and it comfort recruits and we seem to gather in groups where we're all like-minded um, and uh, we understand that that simply doesn't inform creativity or pro-social progress, we've immediately got the motivation to step outside of our comfort zones and seek a broader knowledge and that's a life quest mm. you know I, I have a practice really that's coming up to 40 years and a big part of my joy and my passion has been about meeting people who have different experiences from me and who will will help me understand better mm. uh, and I'm very excited about the current conversations around gender non-conformity and uh, um, sort of non-cis or trans identities, um, where that takes us, that we're seeing playing out parents choosing to bring up their babies as, as babies and for gender not to be this, this kind of big social mm -hmm. set of rules and expectations that's parked up in the house the minute the, the baby's genitals are revealed and I, I, you know, I can so see how that could be beneficial because all we are really is a collection of learned assumptions mm. and we, we all could do better and break out of that. Mm. Episode 23. Sunshine Bertrand, Chloe to Givenchy, London to Ibiza, creating eyewear for fashion's luxury leaders. Eyewear, for me, I just thought, wow, it's so um, specific from a design element, as in you've got to have everything um, safety checked and factored, and it's on your eye, and it's got to be, you know, sun protector and all that kind of thing. So 
Can you just explain a little bit more about how it's different to just making a T-shirt, for example? You know, there's a lot more regulation and, and things behind it. And it's very, yeah, it's probably a lot harder. <laughs> yeah, look, it is. It's heavily regulated. Of course, it's like, a, you know, seen really as a medical device or something. Mm. It's not, um, you can't just put anything on your eyes and look through it and be able to drive or be protected mm. by the sun. Um, it's interesting a few recent trends like red lenses or Mm -hmm. yellow lenses don't apply so sometimes in the bigger brands I work with we just can't get past that whereas these smaller independent brands they can because they can just add something onto it saying not suitable for driving Mm. or um, all those very small micro glasses, you know, they're just yeah. decoration for your face. They're not, they're not protecting you from the sun. Um, and is that fundamentally what you have to do if you provide, this might sound ridiculous, but mm. a pair of sunglasses, it, its primary focus is to be protecting from the sun I rather think than accessory. Like, yeah, I know. think it's changing. Yeah. And it's just like the latest trends have, have pushed mm. that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, no, that's been a mindset that yeah. that has been changed yeah. recently, which is fun because it opens it all, up to, you know, like, like, jewellery. Victoria Beckham's were quite, like, big and, all, yeah. you know, that was her vibe. Like, yeah. And that would definitely protect you from the sun, but the kind of more, I don't know, and also metal on your skin as well. Like, how Absolutely. does that work? Like, yeah. For the heat and stuff. Yeah, know? yeah. Or used to call, I met some guy in New York, I think it's very like common in the States, but you call those massive shades hate blockers. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, there's all sorts of regulations with different metals and, mm. and, and different countries, are, 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 like Australia has the highest or the strongest yeah. Um, yeah. regulations. So, but look, I have to say, I, I, I spend a lot of, time like holding the space around creative freedom for myself and my team and so we're not if we start designing with all of these regulations and all these like super tight briefs from our clients and we just get too stuck it's like designing for a Mm. matrix you know it doesn't it doesn't work so um creating space for for freedom Mm. is an innovation is really important and then we collaborate with the you know these amazing people at the factories who are Mm -hmm. the who industrialize the product and then we collaborate with them about how Mm. it's going to be made and if it's going to pass the regulations yeah and just have thick skin and not be too disappointed when so we get told no. It's such like a specific craft as well as in, you know, we were saying before mm. about how, you know, not many people in England do it, da, 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 but Italy, they really know that craftsmanship element and kind of it's over years and years and years that they've learned this craft. Can you just explain more about the craft part of it, particularly yeah. in Italy and so forth? Yeah, I guess I best know Italy because that's where I've made most. I've made a little bit in um in China and in Japan, but I'm just sort of less connected. I've spent a lot of time uh, at the factories in Italy. Also, it's in the most beautiful place where mm. all the Prosecco is made, so it's not a bad gig. But, um, yeah, there's a really strong lineage um, of craftsmanship in Italy. And I have to say, like, in this heavily industrialised time, mm. it's it's more important than ever, these skills. Um and this knowledge base, and I have huge respect for these people, like the way that their minds think versus ours. Mm. So it's really cool about creating like good relationships and rapport and and really like opening up to a collaborative process at that stage. Mm-hmm. You know, they can bring so much to the process that we, we have a design and they can 
they can suggest Bring it to life and, yeah, yeah. And in a different way that we mm. might not have envisaged it so it's being open and and um not too stuck on mm. your idea also like you find people within um if you ignite a innovative spark in there which mm. a lot of them have they'll start bringing technologies from like the motorcycle industry mm. which they're all obsessed by or 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 skis or something because there's a lot of you know other industries around where the eyewear is and they'll suggest different techniques and that's when it gets really exciting episode 24 flora davidson navigating fashion sourcing with supply compass um to kick off can we talk a bit about your journey into pre-supply compass so I know you worked for example with um, Flamingo who are a a group that I absolutely adore and kind (laughs) of the stuff that they put out is very much in line with how I kind of approach my work as well I guess so yes go for it. (laughs) Yeah great well thanks for having me Um, so I spent my um, previous life prior to supply compass working for Flamingo um, which is a market for those who don't know it's a market research Um, agency that does a lot of um, its qualitative market research very much understanding the consumer around the world um, doing lots of uh, user kind of interviews and but through a kind of cultural lens so really I spent a lot of time traveling um, mainly um, to Brazil America and France were my core markets um, working largely um, within the fashion and sports industries for brands like Adidas Um, and I think what I really learned there was the value um, in understanding people um, what drives them what they want and and really building products or innovating or kind of you know shaping your offering around that Um, because I think all too often people think they know what everyone wants but actually you don't know until you go and interview people and I would spend three weeks at a time literally I remember one of my trips I was in Brazil um, for L'Oreal watching women wash their hair so most of it was watching then we would be interviewing them afterwards and it was um, just an exercise and observation and you I went with my assumptions on this is how I wash my hair and yet it was totally different in Brazil when I was sitting there watching them in their showers so it was a really um, amazing starting point for me for Supply Compass to learn the importance of research Mm. really. And in terms of how in depth you have to look at things and and so qualitative but also quantity as well kind of that's important to a tech-led firm as well because you know iterations of actual product that you're building and kind of even to um, user interfaces and all this kind of thing is is a lot observed from what you've you know what you're saying that you've observed with L'Oreal etc. How have you, so what other sort of projects at Flamingo did you do in terms of, so you, one example was the hair, what other kinds of things did you do while you were there um, that specifically made you think this structure, this way of working, I can use this again? In terms of how we, so how we approached projects, so I worked uh, a lot with Adidas for a few years and we would spend two or three months purely doing research. We would have some assumptions, we would shape, we would um, build discussion guides around some assumptions, very open-ended questions. So you'd say, 
what do you what like how does this make you feel what does and then when people would say things you'd go and why why what does that you know you'd never push you'd never ask closed Mm -hmm. um questions and so that is that really has stayed with me in how when I spent two years at the beginning of supply compass living in India researching the manufacturing sector as an outsider coming in and I think it was actually really important for supply compass for me to be an outsider because I um there were so many inefficiencies and so many issues that actually I could just come with a fresh eye and question and and when every time we arrived at a factory and asked the same questions and that was key is Mm. having the same questions we'd visit we visited 200 factories over our time in Mm. India asking the same questions and spending a couple of days but also observing we would have meals with the factory owners and the and the staff um and it's that combination of open-ended questions it's also what isn't said Mm. that is really important that's what we learned at Flamingo and what are the kinds that aren't what are the kinds of things that aren't said um it's well when you what you really start to understand is that and this is why um with qualitative market research you it's the longer you can spend with someone it, the better is that those first few hours often they're telling you what you they think you want to yeah. hear and so you you'll they'll start saying this is you know you you go into a factory for example and then they'll say everything's great this blah, blah, blah. and then you start to unpick you go okay well what like when there has been issues like why why has that like what you know what's come about there and then they'll start to feel relaxed and trust you and open up and then you really start to understand the problems at the core mm. um as it could they kind of unfold over time um and then you, if something isn't mentioned, but you've kind of have assumptions on it, then you go, oh, what about this? And they go, OK, well, actually, now I trust you to have this conversation. They'll then open up about it. What are the typical kinds of problems that arise? And I mean, the commonalities between factories must be, you know, still there. But what are the what's a typical issue, would you say? Process. There, yeah. It's it's the um, disregard or the lack of standardisation in every single factory and from every single brand and that was something that became apparent really quickly and I think we we went out to India with the um, kind of aim of of helping match brands and manufacturers much better and then our research led us in the direction of we need to help them work better together and Mm. we need to help both sides so we need we kind of place ourselves in between it's not just about helping brands or just manufacturers we need to be the piping Mm. that sits within the supply chain and not just manufacturers but also tier two tier three suppliers and we need to set a standardized way Mm. of working really um so yeah episode 25 hannah fiedler the british fashion brand we want to wear right now what would you say the challenges of a small business are fashion business particularly um based here in the uk and also thinking a little bit about we're very close to brexit deadline Mm -hmm. um i know you've been talking to uh the department of trade and investment you know how did how are you feeling at the minute kind of what your challenges well, in terms of Brexit, I think I feel exactly the same as everyone else, very confused about what's happening. It's impossible to prepare for anything because we don't know what will be happening. I mean, you know, being German myself, having had the amazing privileges of the European Union, of being able to just come here, study here, 
you know, pay this tuition fees that also um, British students pay. And then being able to set up a business here, I of obviously would like uh, this not to be an issue that we have to talk about now. Um, I mean, I made the choice to remain in, in the UK and start my business here because I think the the British fashion industry, thanks to the BFC, has an amazing support system for young designers and there's still hunger here for young brands and the infrastructure is there. So mm-hmm. I, I was able to find manufacturers and ateliers that can work with me on production from May to order to a bigger number of pieces seamlessly. And I... I didn't know of any other place, but I could have done Mm. that. And also London is incredibly inspiring to me. And I love being surrounded by people who also are building or have built something already. Um, Well, I think it's what isn't a challenge (laughs) in in a young business. Um, For me particularly, it is definitely the the numbers game. I would say uh, if I could, I would be happily locking myself into the atelier only creating Mm. designs but that's not how it works, mm. right? And finding also what is your own voice in terms of how you want to speak to customers, finding your customers, how to engage them, what do they want, what do they need? It's a guessing game in the beginning, but the beauty of it is that slowly but surely we we start having that feedback. And um, so far, uh, we we really didn't have to alter what we thought would mm. be our customer and what we thought would resonate with them, which is incredibly lucky. Mm. Um, and yeah, just finding your unique voice because I think the the fashion industry is changing quite a bit. Um, yeah. You know, trends are shifting, and I never saw myself having a, a massive conglomerate of a brand mm. kind of, uh, or uh, sorry, I never saw myself as, as part of a big conglomerate mm. or um, having a brand that is, you know, kind of in association with Chanel, for mm. example, I, I would love to keep it a little bit more personal mm. and uh, keep that idea of, of the craftsman in it. So yeah, I think finding a voice of how to communicate that and, you know, you being, being small but visible, mm. I guess, is, is the challenge. Balance, and, isn't it? Yeah. You know, now it's also, it will be about building a team, being able to grow, finding the right people is incredibly difficult mm. who, you know, resonate with your brand and, mm. and can help you also um, yeah, kind grow of grow with you. Yeah, and, and just yeah. adding on to your skill set because you, you cannot be everything and you cannot be good at everything. So mm. it's important to find people who can help you with that. Episode 26, Grace Woodward, from smoke and mirrors to incredible self-reflection and reinvention. Um, so you've had like quite a varied career in the sense that you've done Britain's Next Top Model, you've mm. done X Fact, you've, you know, shot world-renowned magazines. Mm. Um, how, how has what you've done shaped what you're doing now and how... How have you taken that forward or looked at that retrospectively and, and kind of moved into what you're doing now and, and, and the emotion behind what you were doing at that time, I guess? I mean, I guess I've been working in the fashion industry so long that it, the industry itself has changed yeah. quite a lot. You know, when I first got my first job at Ajahn Fogter, I just graduated from London College of Fashion. I think I was 19. There was no such thing as email. We mm-hmm. still faxed everybody. Uh, so the the nature of the business was yeah. totally different. Um, 
I feel like with the education system, you you know, when you're young and you're in school, everyone's just trying to find a, a vocation mm-hmm. for you. What are you good at? What can you go into mm. to do to make money? Obviously, this is the sort of hamster wheel that we're on. And it's kind of quite intense when you're young. There isn't a kind of thing where you're like, oh, you know, I don't sort of, I don't really know what I want to do or who mm. I am yet. But And you've got to pick quite early anything. on. Yeah, 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 you've absolutely. Choose, yeah. So I chose fashion because it felt, it felt like a place that I could exist alongside other creatives. It felt like a sort of band of, sort of um, creative, like cam- there was camaraderie, but that, the, the fashion industry sort of is extremely good at its its own kind of PR mm-hmm. and smoke and mirror. So what you see from the outside isn't really what happens on the inside, yeah. but it takes you a long time. You know, it took me 10 years of just being determined to succeed. I was like, and you know, and blinkers on, you were just like, it must succeed, success, 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 what, success. What was success at that point to you? I guess, you know, um, I guess, you know, I I was quite shy at college, you know, to to pursue those dreams. And everyone's a bit like, you know, I'm, there's never that person because they never really knew what to do. That was like, I'm going to be a lawyer, and then you go and study and be a lawyer. But, you know, being a creative, it's a bit like, ah. Um, so the styling thing was it was very early on in the styling days when you know there was there was fashion editors who obviously mm-hmm. still at that time were very much controlling the messaging that was yeah. going out. It was very much like a, you will wear this, this is out, mm-hmm. this is in kind of thing. And then there were these kind of like rebel creators, people like Judy Blaine coming through that were just changing things up on a sort of, on a, the magazines that I was reading, like The Face and ID, mm-hmm. you could kind of really see this sort of creative explosion yeah. coming. And I was like, that's what I want to get involved in. But I was still very shy. Mm. And to really sort of go out and grab that by the balls, I was like, you kind of had to be, you kind of had to have a foot in in the industry Mm -hmm. anyway, or be quite an extraordinary young person. Mm. I don't know. I don't think I was. But so I I looked for a company that I felt like represented me, a Mm -hmm. brand that represented me. And I wanted to work for Westwood, but I was too shy. To and go like, and knock yeah, on the door. Yeah, to yeah. be like, hi, hi, I want to work with you. Because it literally is like, hi, hi, I'm great. Ah. And I just wasn't that person. And then I stumbled a- across Ashram Fokker and then found out the backstory that Joe was Vivian's son. Yeah. And it was just one moment in Soho one night and it was a Berwick Street shop and I saw this like neon stuff and I was like, oh my God, this is like the inside of my head. Mm. And so I wrote to them, I wrote them a letter and just was really passionate about it. And they started me on like literally no money and just doing bits and bobs. And I so worked in the shop and I worked in the office because I had varying skills. And I'd worked at the Groucher mm-hmm. Club as I was paying my way through college. And that was like a big yeah. thing, like connections. And, um, and I just sort of grew my way up through that company, mm-hmm. sort of proving, you know, their PR, the girl that was doing the PR left. And I immediately was like, yeah. I want to do that. And so that kind of grew mm-hmm. that way until I'd been there for about four years. And I felt like I'd learned what I needed to mm-hmm. learn there for that particular part of the fashion mm. industry. And I was kind of yearning to do stuff kind of off my own back mm-hmm. kind of thing. And so I left to become a stylist. I kind of knew a few people yeah. at that point, And I just sort of did the leap. And I think London at the time, I mean, that must have been like, 2001 maybe two London at the time you could kind of do that you know yeah, you move could move around yeah kind of be, yeah you know. and also be able to afford to live and kind of like you know sort of 
scrape by basically basically yeah. you know <laughs> live like a sort of creative and but live in the center of town mm. um and then so i was a freelance for like you know t- in, in the end for like 20 years doing different things but i was always i always felt like i was more of a creative consultant i love branding side of things i'm a writer as well mm. so it wasn't just pure styling that i did and then as the digital age grew mm. for fashion i saw a window of going fashion is so visual this is going to go bonkers and so that's why I decided to get into kind of presenting so the first thing I did was for on off and we did a kind of you know hosting and curating thing and then you know and as you've seen now Mm. you know it's it's you can't have it without that yeah Yeah. and so um and then I literally landed top model um like like the biggest kind of tv job within Mm. the within the entertainment industry and I didn't really know what I got into and it was amazing and completely overwhelming at the same time. So I trod that path for a while and I did, until I did X Factor. And what I felt is going more into the entertainment side of things, they take less seriously the creative and yeah. fashion side of things. And that's why fashion is kind of very special. I mean yeah. that in both ways, in the fact that you have room to create. Mm. The, the uh, creative process is respected there is, um, you know, there you are, you have the time to research things. And as I did X Factor, that got cut. Mm. And it was very much, I was pushed into doing high street, high street, high yeah. street, high street, high street. And I, you know, yes, I was the first person to get, you know, brilliant vintage and, you know, mm. any, any kind of like stuff that wasn't just pushing yeah. capitalism, consumerism. I did it. But on the flip side, I couldn't, I couldn't not do it without yeah. having piles of stuff. Mm-hmm. And it just, and I just was, I felt like I was sinking under it. I always think about, you know, Labyrinth, that, the bag yeah. lady, but yeah, that's yeah. what I felt like. I was just sinking under this mountain of stuff, yeah. mountain of yeah. clothes and stuff. And, and I just, I, I felt like I was losing my grip on why I started working mm-hmm. in fashion, mm-hmm. which was a kind of um, self-expression clothes for me were like an alternative Cultural, reality yeah. yeah and an alternative personality mm-hmm. when I was young I, I realized that you could manipulate people with what you wear mm-hmm. quite easily literally people take you at service yeah. value so if you want to dress up like you know top to toe Chanel people think you're rich yeah you know, it's as simple as yeah. that and it's just it's a real it's such yeah. an interesting game to play yeah. Looking ahead to 2020, we've already recorded some wonderful guests and we're very much looking forward to sharing more about our own projects that we've been working hard behind the scenes on. We're also excited to help our wonderful clients grow and reach their dreams. We feel we've set the foundations and now we can flourish. I'm feeling very positive and we can't wait to get stuck into 2020. And I hope you are too.